Thank you for listening to a Christ Church Showman. This is Jared Sparks, one of the pastors at Christ Church Carbondale. We want to thank you so much for listening, as Ransom said, my son. And we ultimately hope that these are God-honoring. And because they are God-honoring, we hope that they are also edifying and encouraging and, and challenging to you in the best sort of way. Thanks so much for listening. All right. Family worship is a wonderful thing, and it sounds a little strange to our ears. I remember the first time I heard about family worship, it was when, re, when I read Family Driven Faith by Vodi Bauckham. I recently reread that book, and I highly recommend it. It's very good. It's a very timely book and a timeless book. It's a book that will be a little bit, you know, sometimes when you have books, there's, there's a time stamp in the book where it's talking about some recent event a hundred years from now nobody will know about. But the bulk of the content of the book will still be very applicable because it's it's biblical and straightforward about God's design for raising sons and daughters. And it's just a very helpful book. And I remember reading that for the first time. I was 23 or 4 years old and didn't have a family yet, didn't know Jordan yet for a couple more years. But that book turned my life upside down. I had left college as a youth ministry major. And I remember studying in college all these youth ministry uh, statistics. And it was alarming to me that we had book after book that was bemoaning the fact that children were growing up in Christian homes, they were being taken very consistently to church, they were going to youth group, they were going through every single thing they're supposed to go through, and uh, here you go, Andy, there's outlines, Glenda, there you go, Um, and book after book from denomination and after denomination was coming out saying that our teens are leaving the faith. They're going away from college and within a year of leaving the home, they're no longer even claiming to be Christian or they're no longer attending church. And so what the answer was for most of my college professors and for most of the people at the time was, well, we just have to do youth ministry better. And Vody Bauckham came along and kind of threw a wrench in the whole thing and said, no, youth ministry is unbiblical. We should stop it. And as a youth ministry major, I thought, oh my gosh, you know, what is going on here? What am I reading? And he was talking about this thing called family worship, and it was just strange to my ears. I didn't grow up with that. Did anybody grow up experiencing family worship growing up in any form of it? Caleb did. Okay. Um, so one in the whole room. Who grew up in church, though? Okay. So that's probably a pretty good survey of, of a lot of uh, the last hundred years. It's not just the last... 50 years or 20 years. It's really for, for quite a long time. Those kinds of things have been labeled as religious and, you know, formal or legalistic and, and really quite unimportant. And especially with the rise of youth ministry, which happened at the very same time of the rise of, of the adolescent movement. And this is one of the things you, we, we learned in youth ministry is the vehicle, the Model T was popularized in the 20s and the 30s. And before that, and even before the industrial age, men and boys grew up together very, very close. Daughters and moms grew up together very, very close. And the trades of the fathers became the trades of the sons generation after generation after generation. And daughters would move from the household of their father to the household of their husband. And it was like that for a very long time. Well, there's this whole adolescent age that started in, in the 1900s where there's now a, a what's called a teenage culture where there's things like this is pre like James Dean and stuff. But there was this thing where these teenagers were starting to spend time together. They were going to school for longer. They weren't working with their fathers. And then they were forging their own way and going to the factories or whatever it may be. There was this thing called teenage culture that started. And then in, by the 30s and 40s, every one of these little towns around here started getting, and throughout the Midwest, started getting these things called teen towns. 
So most of you went to teen towns, or at least know where your teen town was. Ours was in Marion over by, uh, where was our teen town at? It was over by, uh, it was with the tower and that lake was behind it. Yeah, Mark, it was over there. There was a West Frankfurt teen town, a Heron teen town. There was just teen towns everywhere because there was this youth culture. And out of that, churches started thinking, well, we need safe spaces and we need people to minister to these teens. And we need to capitalize on this, uh, not capitalize, but minister to these this teen culture. And youth ministry started and they just exploded. They just showed up. They're, they weren't anywhere in the history of the world. Children's ministry even, you name it, any kind of specialized ministry just started in the 1900s and grew as that decade or as that, that century went on into the 2000s to where everything we think about church, we just have experienced it for multiple generations in a row where it's the church's responsibility to raise children. That's, that's at least they have the disciplinary, like the, the discipline responsibilities of, of discipling them and raising them up. They're the experts. They know better to do with my, with our children when it comes to spiritual formation than we know what to do with our children. And it's, it's just a, it's a paradigm shift. And so when you start thinking about family worship, we need to lay a couple foundation or a couple foundational kind of uh, planks or cornerstones for us to move forward as we think about this. And at the end, we're going to, we're going to highlight a few things, and then this is just really setting the stage for the next three weeks. But first, I already mentioned family-driven faith. This book right here is very helpful. It's family worship, and this would be applicable if you have kids in the home or if you don't have kids in the home. This is across the board for everybody. This is just a good plan. So family worship is consisted of uh, historically reading your Bible, praying, and uh, and singing. And then when children in their home, typically you, comes with catechesis. And so that... Uh, uh, family Driven Faith book talks a lot about about that, and then this talks about these three elements of, of family worship. You can read this book in, I was just talking to George about it, I think we're going to try to get just, we should just get bulk copies of this, because I think we can get a bunch of these. But this is uh, just a really helpful little read to give you a little bit of, of a foundation. Okay, here we go. Um, family culture, when we talk about uh, family worship, that flows from a family culture, and there's a culture that we want to build and develop. And uh, when you think about Nations, nations are collections of families. So at some point, a nation was a family, and then that family grew, and there became more families and more families of, of collected groups of people. And you see some of the breakup of that at the Tower of Babel, but what we see is that families end up being groups of people, and there's civil government that's formed, and there's rules, and there's a don't go past this boundary stone law that's into effect. This is my property line. That's your property line. Uh, there's property on the books. People own this or that, whatever it may be. But all of it develops from families. Nations are made up of families. In the Bible, the church is called the household of God. When we think about a household, we need to be trying to figure out what that means. What is a household? Because when we think about a house today, we think about, and C.R. Wiley talks a lot about this, we think about a place of just retreat and rest, and it's just a, it's basically a tool for leisure. And there are, there are certainly things, things that we have to do in the home, but we have lost the idea of a household being a, a, an economy, a collection of, of a household working together with a main goal, an idea that they're aiming after and they're going for, and that, that household being something that has to do with uh, even multi, multiple generations working together and, and thinking multiple generations. So a household has become a house, which has become basically just a place to sleep and watch movies before you go to bed. Hey, Brandon, there's some documents there if you want to get that. So we want to think about what a household is in, in the Bible, Genesis 12 uh, and forward. You see the household of Abraham. You see the household of Lot. And in Abraham's household, it include, included 300 servants, which you, you guys have heard me joke about this before, but uh, I still think that would be awesome. 300 servants um, in your home, taking care of everything. Be like, yes, that, that would be phenomenal. Um, 
but he had care over those 300 servants and his family and his children. The household also included livestock and included everything that went with his property. And so a household is bigger than just a house. It's even more than just the family that's in the household. It has to do with what the family is doing as well. When a man leaves his father and mother and takes a woman in marriage, then a household is established. So a household is established before children come along, before the livestock, before the servants. Not that we'll ever have servants, but um, before any of that is established, a household is made when a woman leaves her father's rule, her father's care, and goes into a man's world, a husband's world, and the man leaves his father and mother and holds fast and clings to his wife, and the two become one flesh. Household established. Now, it doesn't mean that single people don't have households. People are in different stages of life. And so whatever the place that you're living, you still have a mission by God, and you still have commandments of God to you to live out. But like I said, these things are going to be applicable in different ways in different seasons of life. Okay. Now, um, the household is going to be working together, and uh, they're going to have a mission together. And so we're going to see this in the beginning. I want you to turn your Bibles if you have it and... If you have any questions along the way, we can certainly, you don't have to wait to the end, but we're going to move through this pretty quickly. Genesis 1, 26 through 29. We're going to look at the pre-fall household, post-fall household when it comes to God's commandment to Adam and his household and then Noah and his household. So the two figureheads here we're going to look at are Adam and Noah. Starting verse 26, let us make man in our, excuse me. Uh, let's look at, uh, yeah, let's just start in 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let him have the dominion of the fish of the sea and of the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Talk about a monumental task, thinking about filling the earth. At that point, they know about the garden, but this task would have felt, I mean, yet there's not been sin yet in the world, but thinking about this global impact that these two are going to have, or at least called to have, is pretty pretty monumental. When we think about the Great Commission here in a minute, you're going to hear you know, 12 plus people hearing Jesus say, take the gospel to the world, baptize people. Uh, people from all nations, tribes, and tongues, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. This is a global thing, pretty monumental, and there's going to be a connection between this, this creation mandate and, uh, and the, and the uh, Great Commission here in a minute. But there's some things that we see in this text, and Genesis 1, 2, and 3 have so much for us about how the world operates and functions. We see multiply, we see dominion. The first marriage was built to expand, so the idea was the, the marriage was to multiply. So within this household, this is going to have impact not just in the garden, but already this world concept is, uh, is everything is yours, fill the earth, the whole earth, fill it. So from a marriage to the filling the earth. So the whole goal even in marriage is expansion, multiplication. And it's for building and obeying God. So there's work to do in this household. And it's, norm, it's, it's normative that God would build household put them together, and then they're on this mission for the glory of God. Now, something happens. Adam fails to do this. He fails to protect his wife. And these themes you see in these connections from the Garden of Eden to the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, Jesus failed to protect his wife. He failed to cultivate, to build, and to work, and to do what he was supposed to do in the garden. And he failed at the 
the creation mandate. So he did not fill the earth and subdue it. Hey, what's up? <laughs> so he failed at that. He didn't fill, fill the earth. He didn't subdue it. He dropped his responsibility rather than taking up responsibility. And then when we think about it, immediately we start thinking about Jesus, what Jesus did. Jesus took responsibility. Hey, guys, here you go. Chris, good to see you. Scott, good to see you. There you go. All right. Jesus took responsibility. Jesus took the blame rather than passing the blame. Jesus took responsibility for his bride. Jesus was faithful to his house. He protected and he, and he does protect his bride. And the neat thing is, is that Jesus came to fulfill the creation mandate. So currently, right now, Jesus has bought the world. And given enough time, Jesus is, is subduing the earth. And he's ruling the, the earth. And he's got dominion over the earth. And he's going to do what Adam failed to do. It's this global conquest. And the way Jesus has done that is he's decided to include us in that mission. So that great commission, and in connection with this creation mandate, we get invited up into this thing. So what Adam failed to do, and then later on, as he went on from the garden, he's trying to do, and it's harder to do. We, by the Spirit of God, are caught up in this work of Jesus doing this earth-filling thing. And now we're across the globe. Here we are Christians with the Spirit of God talking about Christian households. And Jesus is doing his work through us. We're a part of this thing. It's a pretty neat thing. So he's using his people. Now, post-fall, you think, okay, well, what, what this creation mandate thing about fill, multiply, there's responsibility for the household, This just two, just a couple, that's it. And they start having children and they begin to multiply and the earth begins to fill up. And just a few chapters later, we hear about the corruption of the earth. And then by Genesis chapter 8, the earth is purified through the flood. And God's wrath is expressed against even the animal kingdom. And then it's fascinating. Check this out in Genesis chapter 8. Here's how the chapter ends. Starting in verse 21. And Lord, and when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. And that, that's never changed to this day. Neither will I strike again every living creature as I have done, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. Okay, now, very next verse. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Phenomenal. Now, this is a sidebar. This is just something that just clicked today that's just pretty cool. Um, everything. So in the suppression of the truth, mankind has an amazing ability to invert truth and say the opposite of what's true. So right now, overpopulation has been this thing for a very long time, for 100 years or so. People have been talking about the problem of over, overpopulation and the climate crisis that, that's a figment of, of scientists' imagination, uh, imagination. What we see here is a, a promise of a foundational climate um, a stability, of seed time and harvest, year in and year out, the sun and the moon. The, things are put in order and in structure. And God has promised after the fall that these things are going to remain constant and consistent. And... On top of that, with that being the foundation here, build on that now. Go forth, multiply, and fill the earth. So population has nothing to do and will, ever, will never have anything to do whatsoever. And it doesn't mean that we get to be bad stewards of creation or something like that or that we just go out and litter. 
because the, the physical universe does matter. Jesus rose bodily, so we don't litter. So there's the connection with the resurrected body and even things like not littering. The reason we don't litter is because Jesus physically resurrected. And so physical matters. But the neat thing about this is that the earth is going to fill and fill and fill and fill with the consistent climate there and in place. And these are the things that God has promised us. So Christians don't get to buy into the, the, the bandwagons that everybody is, is talking about, where, whether it's global warming or global cooling. This, you know, that certainly there's going to be ebbs and flows. I'm not a meteorologist or even a historical, you know, I don't have the historical ability to analyze weather patterns or anything like that. But the promise is bedrock right here for us to know that the the foundation of filling the earth is that God is going to maintain the stability of this thing. It's going to work. It's going to be there for us. The resources are not going to run out. The seasons aren't going to run out. There's going to be seed time and harvest, meaning there's going to be plenty of food if we do things the way God has called us to do. And if if we certainly there's going to be um, certain places that rebel against God where there's going to be seasons where there's uh, famine or flooding and there's not going to be a good harvest. But globally, the promise is there's always going to be enough seed, enough harvest for the world population. And uh, it's just a, it's a neat it's a neat promise. But it goes on. And uh, so now that sidebar is closed. Now back to verse two. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens and upon everything that creeps on the ground and all flesh in the sea into your hand. They are delivered. Now, this is uh, interesting because when we talk about uh, prophecy and we talk about the lion laying down with the lamb and we wonder, when is that? And we think about that in, in, in kind of naturalistic ways, because right now a lion goes and kills the lamb. But because we have dominion over things like even lions and lambs, you can actually Mankind actually has the ability to tame a lion and put a lion in certain cages in certain places where um, you can actually, um, for instance, I saw a lion and a dog that grew up together and they're best friends, a lion and a dog. Now, in the wild, if it was just in the wild, they're meeting each other on the streets in Indonesia or something like that, that's probably going to be a a, a bloodbath and the dog's going to die. But because we have this dominion, Another example of that, when I got to go bear hunting, I actually killed one, um, but when I got to go, um, you're nervous because in the nighttime, you're walking back to the cabin and you're thinking, there's bears all around me. You know, I'm not used to this. At home, there's not bears all around you. And the guy I was hunting with, Kevin, he's like, hey, don't worry about it. Every time they see you, they just run. They're just, they just, they're out of there. So if they see you, they're not running to you. They're running away from you. And some of these things like this, are there cases certainly of, of bear attacks and things like that? But generally speaking, the, the animal kingdom, we have this dominion over them. And if we walk in wisdom, we can use that dominion to rule over even the animal kingdom. Now, when you connect what's happening in Genesis with Rome, with, with, I mean, excuse me, Genesis chapter, chapter eight and nine, going into chapter nine with what's happening in Genesis chapter one, there's very, there's similar things that are happening. So post fall, multiply, fill, subdue. The earth is your, the earth is yours. We have the pro- prohibition over eating of the blood um, in verse 4. And there is, a, uh, there is this mission of increase, multiply. So the same thing is happening in Genesis, Genesis chapter 9 that's happened in Genesis chapter 1. Fill the earth and subdue it. Take charge, have dominion, fill this place up, multiply. Now, in the scriptures, that command is never revoked. It's just the modus operandi of the Bible that people get that that men leave their father and mother hold fast to their wife the two should become one flesh and then generally speaking unless there's some sort of providential hindrances there there is multiplication 
and there's a family that works together, that lives together, that dwells together. This is how God has designed things to work. And unless there's that providential hindrance then, households are intended to increase and to build and expand over the earth. And this for me has been really life-giving to think about multi-generational faithfulness. And if Noah and his family looked out and said, there's a big world now, we're not constrained by the garden, okay? We know that this earth is bigger than the garden now. It's really, really big. The task is so big, it's so untamed, it's so wild, why would we bring children into this? It's so dangerous, why on earth would we risk this? This modern idea of children being optional is simply that. It's a modern idea. It's not that. The expectation and the norm in the scriptures is multiplication. There's this idea in the Bible that you get married, you multiply, and then the families or the households are working together, doing things that God has called them to do together. Now, when you go to the New Testament, you also see a global conquest. You see this thing called the Great Commission in Matthew 28, and you get some similar themes and now it's expanded, um, it's expanded, but it's still similar. So in the Great Commission, go into all the world, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you till the end of the age. And it starts with, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So this now there's this global connection that we have as God's people where there's this still, we, Jesus has brought us on mission through the Great Commission to his fulfillment of the creation mandate. Dominion, rule everywhere, the Spirit of God continuing, the Spirit of God present on every single continent now. Every continent. I don't know about Antarctica, but every, every continent where there's people, there are Christians all over this globe now. The earth is being filled up. And, you know, I've ran some of the numbers for you guys before in a sermon where that's actually, that's actually the percentage of Christians in the world, even with the population, is growing. So there's 32 point something percent of global population that claims to be Christians. Now we know that not everybody claims to be a Christian is actually a Christian. But what we see is Jesus is actually using us and, and through this, this work of the Great Commission throughout the world, it's being done. Jesus is doing this. Now, when we think about how in the world households comes into this, we think about expanding to every nation. For that to happen, I don't have the ability to go to every single nation. I don't. I can't do that. You can't do that. We're studying David Livingstone right now with Ransom, and David Livingstone, I don't really like him at all. God did some things in spite of him, but he treated his family awful, and it's in so many ways it's inexcusable. I know it was a different day, and and men would be gone for long periods of time for their family. But it was just tragic how he treated his family. And one of the biggest, uh, his dying regret was that he didn't spend time with his family. And um, and so there was something there that he, he knew later on that that, that, that was wrong. I shouldn't, I shouldn't have done that. But he would travel, and he, just throughout Africa, I mean, he was gone for months, for years at a time. On, on, and, and we don't have that, we can't do that. So with the Great Commission, how do we... How do we play our small part in that? Because it was given to the twelve, the Holy Spirit began to work, and already in just you know five chapters in the book of Acts, over over a, a short amount of time, the whole book of Acts is thirty years, but uh, pretty rapidly there's already five thousand Christians in Jerusalem, but they're still in Jerusalem. They can't go everywhere throughout the world. So what's their part? The Great Commission doesn't mean that I have to go throughout personally, that I have to go to every single nation. 
but it's being accomplished. And how is that being accomplished? And that's where we get in this household thing. So Ephesians chapter 5, 22 through 33, the Bible sets up the establishment of the household. And it just is, not sets up, it reflects what's already set up about the household from Genesis chapter 1. And so in those first verses, we're not going to work through all of them. We're actually going to work through these here in a few weeks when we go through our series on marriage. Um, You can go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 6, though, if you'd like. But what's established in the household is authority and submission and oneness. The husband has authority in the home. The wife has the responsibility of submitting in the home. So that means leadership is put upon the husband. And then the husband and wife are united as one flesh. So in that oneness, there's a unique way. So I I don't share genetic code with Jordan, and I do with my children. But I'm not one flesh with my children. I'm one flesh with my wife. There's something supernatural that God's doing in this household thing. When my children leave and leave our home, we still have a household. Before Ransom came along, we had a household. And I had responsibilities before our house was established, even as a, just as a single man. But we, when we came together, this, this household is established. So we have oneness. Now, how it works in marriage, I am called to lead as Christ led the church sacrificially. And Jesus led the church, and the church is to submit to Christ. So Jordan is to submit to me. Wives are to submit to their husbands. Husbands are to love their wives. And it all leads up to um, the, the reality that this oneness that's displayed in marriage is about Christ and the church. Christ and the church are one flesh. We are the body of Christ. And so there's similarities here with marriage and the church because both have a mission. We, we are brought up into the mission of the church as a Christian couple, and then the, the text ends before going into chapter 6 with love and respect. And that's critical. We're going to, again, get into that deeper. But love and respect is so critical in marriage because most, not all, most marriages when it comes to um, difficulties in marriage come down to this. The husband does not feel respected and the wife does not feel loved or cared for. just comes down to that. And, it, and it's the husband wants significance, the wife wants security. So the, these things play out like that. So love and respect. So there's commands towards sin propensities to the husband and the wife. Okay. Now we get to children and we get to this thing called the paideia of the Lord or the culture of the Lord. If you've heard anything from Brian Sauvé, uh, our buddy, when he came here and did the marriage um, and or the household series and we were doing that at the old church building, it's still online somewhere. It's in the archives somewhere. It's phenomenal stuff. But he did such a good job laying this out and I'm, I'm indebted to him and, and to so many others who have, who have helped me think through household um, theology. But we get into chapter 6 and we read this. It's, it's like, um, it really is like dynamite because it's just, you get a few little verses, but there's so much in those verses. It's just so rich. And so we're going to read verses 1 through 4, make a few comments, and, uh, and then we'll get into questions. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first command with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. This is still a promise, by the way. If children were honor, and if we set the pace, like parents in here, honoring, Lido and Deanna have done such a great job of honoring their their parents and honoring Deanna's mother as they've taken care of her. Honor is a proactive thing, and there's promises attached to that. 
Now, for us, I, I don't exactly know all the details about living long in the land or anything like that, but I know that when God says, if you'll obey your parents in the Lord, then there's, there's, it's the first command with a promise, it'll, it will go well with you. And so, if you don't honor your parents and obey your parents, it's not going to go as well for you as, than if you do. And so if you, if you have these two roads here uh, to take, one is dishonor and one is honor, we need to model for our children and that our children need to hear the commands, honor your parents, it's going to go better for you than if you dishonor them. And there's promises attached to that obedience. If our children obey us in the Lord, they're going to love Jesus, they're going to honor him, they're going to make wise decisions, they're going to grow up, and they're going to be, they're, they're going to be uh, people who know how to live as God's people in a, a crazy world, but also they're going to know how to live as citizens of the kingdom of God. So if they'll obey us, things will go really, really well. If they disobey us and they don't do what God's called us to do, hi Chris, Chris is waving at me, so I thought I should wave. They don't do that. It's not going to go well. There are consequences to that kind of disobedience. But then we get this, that it may go well with you and you may live long in land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Now, the Bible doesn't have this detailed handbook to everything about parenting. Sometimes I wish it did, right? Wouldn't that be great if it was like, here's all the practical application. Here's exactly what you do in this moment and that moment. But that's not how the Holy Spirit of God works, not in inspiration and not in leading us and in giving us wisdom, um, both in the Proverbs, but wisdom to, to apply the knowledge that we have from God's Word. This, but this passage um, is potent. It's, uh, it's full of power. There's so much there as you begin to think through it and just think about each word or think about each phrase. Children, the expectation um, first because this is here, we have to see the connection to marriage and then it goes right into children. The, the simple expectation is that people are going to get married and have children. That's just the simple expectation. Get married, have kids. That, that here is the presupposition of the Bible. I did a, a podcast today on this and wrote an article several years ago, and it actually ended up creating quite a, quite a dust-up. But in the Bible, like I said earlier, it's just that, that is a, intentional childlessness is not a Christian position. It's antithetical to the scriptures. It's saying to God, life ends with me. I will not bear fruit. We will not multiply. We will not leave an inheritance to our children's children. We will not raise children in a household. Now, there are some people that cannot have children. And one of the things I said in the, in the podcast episode I said this morning, children, couples that don't have children but want them, they know how much of a blessing children are. And, and yet we've, we are so inundated with the world and even the church has bought into these ideas that, that children really are a burden and uh, they're not a blessing. And, and the Bible tells us something totally other than that. That the, the Bible is, is expecting us, the anticipation is get married and have children. That's just, that's what it is. That's what is normative in the scriptures because they are a blessing. Okay, so number one, don't provoke your children, but instead bring them up or nourish them, provide food for them, take care of them. That is what the word when you see, do not provoke your children, but bring them up in the discipline. Before we get to discipline, which is the word paideia, uh, bring them up is the idea of nourishment or provision. So when you think about the, the sense of the word actually has to do with, with like physical food, providing food for their bodies. And so as the text goes into the spiritual side, in the same way there's obligations to provide food. So if your children are going hungry, you do what, whatever it takes to get them to have food. Whatever it takes, you got to do it. You provide food for them. You're gonna you're you're gonna uh, kill the animal. You're gonna go. You're gonna withhold eating yourself, eating from your you know your, the meal yourself, or, or parse it out and and make sure that they've got a bigger port. You're gonna take do whatever it takes to take care of your children. Okay. 
You're going to nourish and provide. So also in that way, because you want to take care of their physical needs, you want to shelter them, which again, somehow, um, think about things that are just so common. I don't want to shelter my kids. It's like, well, why, why not? Actually, you do want to shelter your kids. And you do want to protect them from things that are out there. And you do want to take care of their physical needs and their spiritual needs. And you do want to protect them from those that want to war against what you are training them in. Okay, that's, that's what you want to do. So, um, so as you do that physically, you want to do that spiritually. So there's where the paideia. So also discipline, the paideia, the upbringing of the Lord. So the, the idea is this, is the whole the, the a holistic approach to what it means to discipline our children or raise them up. So this is about training. It's about education. It's both uh, the cultivation of the mind. It's the commandments of God. It's the reproofs of the scriptures. It's the admonitions of God's word. It's the way God's people live and function. That's how are we to raise them up. That's how we're to raise them up um, in in the Lord. That's, that's what our household should look like. So when you um, are planting a garden, um, you can plant a garden just outside in the backyard and there's going to be a plant that grows. Like the plant's going to grow, the tomato plant's going to grow. In our area, there's a lot of clay. There, it still will grow though, and there'll be a few tomatoes on it. And and it but and it'll grow. You, tomatoes, maybe. What, what was that? Not in your garden. Okay. The last couple of years, there has been something with the. It seems like with the seeds or with the. It, it's not really done that great. But so just go with the illustration here. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Just go with it. So you plant it, but. And it will grow. Like, it is true that you're going to get a plant, okay? You can have children, have them in your home, and they're going to grow. If you give them food, they're going to grow. And they're going to catch some things, and they may even produce some sort of fruit. But if you put that garden in, you get a garden box, and you get the manure, and you get the, you through the year, you get the, um, what's it called when you, you were putting the eggs? Compost, and you, you do all the things you're supposed to do. You know, the things that you do to make your, your tree grow. Or the, excuse me, the uh, the uh, uh, the tomato grow. Well, then you're you're providing yourself an opportunity to to see that produce more and to grow bigger and stronger. And you're you're doing the work, a little bit extra work, rather than just planting it out here and just hoping that everything just works out okay and it's going to grow and you're going to get some tomatoes. But if you'll do all of this over here, was that lightning? That was lightning. Wow. Okay, so. If, if you'll do all, all the, the things to the soil and make sure that it's got the proper sunlight and you water it every day, then what you're going to end up having is better results than if you do this. You, you can't determine, like you can't make sure, like that doesn't automatically mean. But what I'm saying is normat- the normative way is if you, pro- if you do all of that stuff, it's not that that ensures that you're going to get the biggest, ripest, most, you know, best tasting tomatoes ever, but that's going to provide a better environment for that thing to blossom and, for, and grow and to, to be strengthened. So when we think about the household, which family worship is a part of, think about the way we live our lives. We want the things that we're doing to create that soil for our children to grow up and be as strong physically, spiritually, emotionally, mentally. We want to do what it takes to put those supplements in there to see them grow up healthy in the way God would have them grow up. And instead of provoking them, which is easy to do, what's harder to do is discipline them. And the easy thing for dads to do, and I grew up in a a generation after generation of provokers, is to just, I mean, provoking to the point that the children are crying and screaming and angry and kicking and mad as the dad laughs and enjoys every bit of it. It's just, it's literally, you just, you provoke. And that's, that's, that's very, very easy. But discipline is difficult. 
It does include things like spankings. It does include things like talks that you have over and over and over and over again. It, it includes times like we're, we're in right now where it feels like you're having to say the same thing over and over again and do the same thing over again and spank for the 150th time in the last month over the exact same thing. And the behavior, the fruit seems to be slow. But what we're doing then when we're doing that is we are putting the eggshells in the garden. We're putting the compost in the garden. Okay, that's, that's what we're doing. The easy thing is to just back up and just leave that thing to go and do whatever it needs to do, and it's just going to grow on its own. And you'll get an adult, but you're just not going to get a very healthy one. Okay, so family worship is a part of this paideia of the Lord. It's this culture that we're wanting to build. And this task is given to fathers, the training, the education of the children, it says, discipline your children, the Lord, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So this is about the upbringing, instruction of the Lord, wisdom of the Lord, the warnings of the world, the doctrine of the scriptures, what God teaches, not just what man teaches. That means doing what it takes to protect them from false teaching. One of the things that we have to think about when it comes to education, secular education is false doctrine. Even in mathematics. And that's why the, um, uh, you know, several people have pointed this out, but the, the idea that education is just the simple passing of facts to a child about history or about mathematics or whatever it may be. Everything that that's growing in, and that the soil, let's go back to the soil illustration, everything that's happening. So if you go and read like John Dewey's work and if you read the, the, the Secularist Manifesto or the, uh, the Humanist Manifesto, which our whole education system is built on, you will be, your mind will be blown. That is the soil that our education system is planted in. Secular humanism. Okay? So when you include things that are true, you know, you can include things that are true, mathematics, that are, that's it's true facts. But when it's in the soil that's rotten, okay, over time, get enough time, you have people saying two plus two is five. It's a natural consequence of having a, a bad foundation or a bad soil. So it's like building a house. Again, you could use different illustrations for this. And they say it's like, a, you know, sand instead of a cornerstone kind of thing, it's a, instead of a concrete slab. So the father's responsibility then is to do this for his children. Now, who is the, who, who is one flesh with the father? That is the mother. Who is the helper of the husband? That is the wife. I think there's a hard case. I'm, I'm going to make this uh, like die hard, but um, or make this a point of division or anything like that. But fathers are often going to delegate and be in this one flesh thing when it comes to discipline instruction with their children because their wife is there. And if you're working outside of the home, there are things that are going to be delegated to the wife because you're in this one flesh. And if it's given to the husband to, to some degree or another, it's given to the wife to be a helper in this task. So my wife is doing primarily the work of the formal education of our children. And I'm in on a Friday. Uh, Fridays is the goal when it's like the smallest day. So I have the smallest day. But education is broader than just that formal education that we're doing. It has to do with all of life, what we're doing. And uh, we're, we're training them up in that. So I think the most biblical way to do this is doing what's been done in the history of the world where, where sons and daughters are, what Robert Bly says, murderously close with their parents. And not that Christian education 
in classical Christian. I know Shane is working at, over at Ambleside over there. Classical Christian education can do really, really good job. Uh, Charlotte Mason education out there in schools and different schools can do a really good job. And it's the Christian obligation to oversee and do everything they can to make sure their children have a Christian education. I think the best way to do that is at home. I think. I'm not going to say the biblical way to do that is only at home. And second to that, I think, is the father delegating that teaching obligation to a Christian school. So I think the first and best way to do it is through the home because you're building this, this household of, of glory and of kingdom work and of mission together. And if you can't do that, then Christian education. And I think the church's role in parents that can't afford that or can't do that is to do everything we can to make it as easy as possible for them to get a Christian education for their children because it's a command. It's not optional. And um, the argument that says you can send your kids away, like if like the public school, public schools, I don't think there's any justification for it at all. And the argument that says, well, you can still raise your kids that way when the soil they're planted in is antithetical to. And it doesn't mean that God doesn't say, I grew up I mean, at public school, and God say, you know, God, God can do that. God can save us um, in that kind of setting. But that obligation is given to the fathers. Okay, so now... In the nurture and admonition of the Lord, this is the, the culture, so it's beyond just family worship. This is everything. It's beyond just the formal education side. We get into this thing called family worship. Okay, This is where we're going the next few weeks. So why family worship? Why do we do family worship? Because family worship is a part of, it's a part of raising our children in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. The normal habits of the church, the family of God, God has established this to have a week where there's formal worship on the Lord's day. We come together, we worship the Lord together, we do that as a family, okay? As the family, we come and we do formal worship. Then throughout the week, we're not doing formal worship every single day when it comes to coming together as the people of God, but we are living our life to the glory of God in all of life. So whatever you eat, drink, or do, do all to the glory of God. So when you work, you're working for the glory of God, all of your life is worship, beyond just the Lord's day on Sunday mornings. In the same way in the household, we have these patterns or structures that can be built in to where in the same way that this, if we're raising them in the culture of the Lord, the patterns that God has established for his people can be representative in the household as well. We're training them up in the ways of the kingdom of God. So in our households then, we can have formal times of worship when we come together. And this can happen daily. It doesn't have to take an hour and a half. We don't have to even get dressed up to do this. You can do it in your sweatpants and your hoodies before bed or in the mornings, um, whenever it may be. But we can have these patterns of before we do uh, life and work today or before we go to sleep tonight, we are going to formally come together and we're going to worship the Lord together. We're going to hear to him. We're going to respond to him. And we do that because God calls us to worship him and he commands fathers to raise our children this way. And uh, and so that's why we do it. Family worship is a part of the culture of the ways of God. It's the, it's the, it's part of the culture of God's people. So we do this as families. This is this is just stepping in line with raising them in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. So as uh, um, all of life is worship, family worship can be the bookends of our day. And and then this is the practical side of it. Um, we get to remind each other daily as a family that. The grace of Jesus is sufficient. We get to sing songs that proclaim the good news of the gospel. I don't know about you, but I get to the end of the day, and there's times where I get to family worship, and I'm crabby in family worship. Where it's like, ugh, just listen. Just listen. That's, or, or with louder tones than that. Sit down, you know, you know, you know your, t- um, hopefully I'm not the only one with tones like that. 
And uh, it can be really hard, really frustrating, it just, it, just honestly. Uh, remembering, because now I read Vodi Bakum and it was a family, it was a, it was a kick in the pants. We have done family worship consistently, but it's been, uh, it's not been well put together. It's been sloppy. Would you say I've, I've done, I've not done it as, as different seasons have been better than others. It's been consistent since we've been, uh, since really Ransom came along. But, um, it can be difficult, but, but with family worship, here's the thing. We, you sing a song together. Okay, just these these three these these elements or four elements. You sing a song together, and we've not been consistently catechizing. They, Jordan has been in, in our school, but not in family worship. So we are singing a song, and right now we are singing. It, this is my father's world, and by Allie Rogers. It's a uh, not by her, but that's the one singing it. And then we're reading, and we're going back through the Jesus Storybook Bible, and we realize that Valor has not known some of the Bible stories that Ransom knows, and we just kind of assumed he did. And we were sitting around the dinner table the other day, and Jordan was like, Valor, can you tell us about Daniel in the lion's den? And he's like, nope. <laughs> like, oh, okay, well, that's one that you'd think that, you know, a four-year-old would know, so we told him. And and uh, so we're going back through some of this, the, the basic stuff, because we did that with Ransom. We went through all these story Bibles, but we have it with Valor, so we're just going to go back through those. Yeah, yeah he, he has. He just too, yeah, exactly. He's but too little. So then, uh, after that, we pray. And in this time, you're reminding each other, um, that there's grace in Jesus. It's time to confess and you can repent and turn to Christ again. And you can say, guys, I'm sorry. I can't tell you how many times I say sorry to my family or to my kids where it's just like, you know, I, I'm, I blew it and please forgive me. And they're gracious with me. And you know, we're gracious with them. It's, you're building a culture of grace. I mean, that's how we are with the body of Christ is we're, we're kind to one another. We're forgiving, tenderhearted, and forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven us. And we get to daily remind ourselves of Jesus. And so here, here's what it looks like. We sit down, we have our family in front of us. And right now what we're working on is here's my expectations, guys. I'm expecting you to sing with me. Okay. So we'll be on the bed or on the couch and, uh, Providence will be sitting or running or dancing around and we've stopped the dancing and I've realized that I've got to stop being goofy because for a while I was being really goofy with family worship. I got on top of our coffee table and was acting like a court jester herald to the kids and like just trying to get them interested. And I realized it was more of a distraction. So now I'm wanting them to sit and listen. Our kids are rambunctious. I'm trying to train them for, for in here. And it's, it's still, it's one of those things. It's like, gosh, I wish they were better. Like Sunday, Valor was just walking back and forth. I'm like, buddy, just sit. Um, so they're getting up and down. So we're singing a song and in the middle of the song, the cat runs up and they're like, Oh, Loretta ransom forgets that we're singing and starts talking. We say, stop, no talking. We want to sing valor. I recognize isn't singing. And I'm saying Valerie, Hey, sing buddy. We want to sing. And, and then Providence is, you know, running around doing her thing. After we sing, we will read a story in the story Bible and I'll read this to her and there's still distractions going on, but we're reading, we're reading the story. And then after is we take prayer requests. So who's got any prayer requests? We'll do prayer requests, and then we just pray over it. And then that's it. That's all it is. Husband and wife is going to look a little bit different, and you guys are going to find your rhythms, especially, you know, Lito and Deanna, you know, they've been married a little bit longer than we have, and so you're going to find your patterns. You guys have been married longer than we have as well. You're, you know, I know Scott, you and Lynn have been married for, for a while as well, and there's some here that you, you find your rhythms of how you do that kind of stuff together. The whole point is intentionality. You want your home even when your kids are gone, you want the soil of your home to be the things of the kingdom. You don't want it to be just plant it in the backyard and just watch it grow. 
You know, if, if you coast over the years, it's easy to be in, it, it's easy for seasons to be intentional, but it's really easy to coast and you just you just just throw that just throw that thing out there and, and hopefully it'll grow. And with the, the ways of God and how he's wired things to work, it, he's called us into intentionality. And we, 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 provoking is easy. Discipline's hard. And it, the hard path is the better path. Okay, let's uh, open up for Q&A or any comments. You guys may have some ideas of, of how to do it even better than, than I just mentioned. But we'll get into some more stuff in the next few weeks. So thoughts, comments about any of it? Yes.